Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined by returning guest speaker and SAC Consulting Sheep Specialist Kirsten Williams and we discuss the flock of the future. We touch on issues ranging from the challenges of flock health, the pursuit of more lambs per year, the need to raise the profile of wool in Scotland and the place for sheep in the farmed upland environment more generally. Hi there, Kirsten. How are you doing? Good, thank you, Alex. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, I can't complain. Thanks very much for coming back on the podcast. It's, it's good to have you back. No problem at all. Kirsten, before we got kicked off there, we were discussing the fact that this is your second time on the podcast. The first time we had you on, you were discussing flock resilience in season two or, or what was two years ago. We're now in season four. Can I just get an overview of who you are, Kirsten, what your role is with SAC Consulting and why this topic is particularly important to you? Okay, so I'm Kirsten Williams and I am a sheep and beef consultant with SAC Consulting and I'm based up in the northeast of Scotland. And why why the topic is, is um, of relevance to me is my, my day job really is looking at, at sheep systems and looking how to improve efficiency. So being able to look to the future and see what the, the future of uh, the sheep flock is, is really, really quite important to, to the future of agriculture. And for any of the listeners who might be looking at the title of this episode and thinking, this looks kind of familiar. We Did we not hear about the cow of the future? We, we did that uh, as part of, uh, part of uh, one of the podcasts in the previous season. So felt that uh, having covered ca- the cow of the future, uh, it was worthwhile talking about what the flock of the future looks like. Um, Kirsten, can you just summarise, uh, I've mentioned that it's been two years since we've had you on the podcast. Can you just summarise what's been happening in the sheep sector in Scotland um, since you were last on and, and what's what's the kind of recent developments that you think people should be paying attention to? Okay, I guess within the last two years, a lot has happened. A lot has happened. And I guess the, the biggest things would be the, the rises in inputs and feed fertiliser and fuel following the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And that has been really, really quite significant for the sheep flock. At the same time that in summer 22, last summer, we had um, a real lack of water as well. So while we were we were lacking grass, it was also the, the cost of our fertiliser and our feed inputs had, had gone up so substantially as well, which did distort the market in a bit in the way that there was a lot of um, lambs finished or sold finished a bit earlier than they, they should have been. So that that did, did uh, distort the market. And there would still be quite a lot of hogs on the market now. That's us in June now. So um, it's just just with those costs of inputs and people's decisions has, has just maybe fast forwarded people's thinking resiliently and having to adapt and change depending on, on what the season does and, and what the inputs do. Similarly, we've, we've, we've really seen how delicate our supply chain is when there's, there's certain feeds that are just very difficult to get or, or go up in price so much that likes the sugar beet pulp, where a, a feed that a lot of people would have put into their pre-lambing rations, just the price of it and the availability of it really made people have to, to change and think and, and re-strategize. 
And what's your um, what's your take on the kind of outlook of the sector? Do you think people are being resilient? Is is there some positivity out there, or are some of these challenges things that we're we're yet to get over? Yeah, I th- there is actually really good positivity in the the sheep industry. The, the flock is increase, increasing in the UK, which is really good, and there's global shortages of protein. So there is there is a really big opportunity there, but. Our domestic demand for lamb isn't as high as it has been, but our export demand is. So there's a lot more lamb going over to, to Europe, which is, is really good. Given that now our, our price is actually really quite high, it's how long it actually manages to stay attractive to our exporters. That's, that's the next worry. We also have got the New Zealand and Australia trade deals about to kind of come forward as well. I honestly don't think that's that's going to affect us too much in the short term, just because this closer markets to those guys. New Zealand is decreasing their flocks substantially. Australia is increasing their flocks substantially, but they have got far easier and closer markets in the likes of USA, China. So um, I, I don't think it's going to be a, a massive problem for us in the short term. Great. And um, just before we, we get into it, Kirsten, we're obviously recording this um, just on the run up to, to the Royal Highland Show. Are you planning on going ahead, uh, going through yourself? Yep, yep. I'll be I'll be going through, definitely, yes. And uh, what, what are you hoping to see this year? The thing the thing I love about the, the show is catching up with people. It's, it's the networking. It is seeing people, hearing the lowdown from lambing from not just in the northeast where I am, but but the whole of the country. And uh, just letting people share ideas, see any new technologies. Technologies really, really in, in, just blows my mind, to be honest with you. And um, I really like the, the innovation stands and the innovation competition to see what exactly people have, have thought up and what is coming into the industry, which I think is really exciting. And, and uh, I look forward to that. Good, good. Do you know, not to jump the gun um, too early, but uh, one of the big takeaways, I think, from the podcast that we did with Robert Ramsey on the cow of the future was his take um, and that essentially the farm of the future, the business of the future looks an awful lot like the business of the 1950s in the sense that it's a a mixed farming enterprise. but with technology from the, the 2020s. Um, so we'll maybe get a chance to talk a little bit more about technology as we go through, but, um, but no, I think that's, that's really good. So Kirsten, the idea, obviously this is Thrill of the Hill. We are primarily um, interested in issues that are impacting the farmed upland environment. Um, and it shouldn't surprise anybody who's listening to the podcast that uh, sheep flocks are an integral part of, of the farmed upland environment. Obviously, everybody will have their own breed preference. Um, those of you who are sheep farmers and are listening to the podcast, um, we're not suggesting that, that one particular breed or one particular system is better than, than any other. But I thought it would be worthwhile just going down through the list of some key attributes that, uh, that, that all sheep have. Um, and uh, we'll kind of have a bit of a discussion about what you think is important, what you think is less important, um, where you think we, we should be going um, and what we should be staying away from. So does that sound all right? Absolutely. And as a pedigree breeder, um, I am go- this, is, this is good because I don't have to talk about specific breeds, definitely. 
So, Kirsten, the, the first thing that I've got on my list when, when I'm talking about um, animals in the upland is their ability to be, get about. Obviously, it's a very challenging environment and we want them to make the best of it. So mobility, how important is that for you when you're assessing um, a flock? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because mobility is something that's, that's outside the sheet. And when I'm thinking flock of the future, I'm probably thinking what's inside it rather than what's outside it. Because in the UK, we are appalling, actually, in that we've got over 90 different sheep breeds. And you have got everything. You've got big sheep, you've got little sheep, you've got long-rolled sheep, short-rolled sheep, long necks, short necks, long legs, <laughs> short legs. And so, and so it goes on. So like we can, we can speak about all the different attributes you physically see. End of the day, they're hung up. And I think that's, that's the important thing. I also think with, with inputs and the, the kind of supply chain issues that we've seen, ideally for me, the, the, the sheep of the, of the future is one that produces more from less. And I think a lot of that comes from what's inside the sheep rather than what's outside the sheep. We've got some major challenges such as uh, worm and, and fluke, depending what, what parts of Scotland you're in, can be worse. And if we could find a sheep that's resistant to some of those things, definitely, definitely um, all the better. Genetics is massive. And again, like that's inside, that's that's not what's outside. Um, your genetics gives you the, pe the, the potential, but your management has to be right to fulfill the potential of those genetics, which I think is something that's, that's really quite massive. And like I'm saying, we're terrible because we've got 90 different breeds of sheep. But look how many different land classes we've got within Scotland. And I, I, I don't think there's actually one sheep for the future. There's many a sheep for the future, depending on where you are, what climate you're working with, how much labour you've got. There's so many different things involved in the in the discussion here isn't there the so Kirsten the the next thing then uh, that I've got on the list is is maternal instinct now um when we originally recorded with Robert I called this milkiness and we had a bit of a laugh to, to ourselves but uh, maternal instinct uh, in sheep how, how important is that to you then yeah and and sorry I, I didn't really answer mobility either did I I went off in a bit of a, a bit of a tangent there but um, mobility is, is massive. It is massive. They have to move to be able to eat. So that is obviously massive. Maternal instinct is very much, it, it comes within the genetics there as well. And if, if you don't have a mother um, that wants her lamb, you've got, you've got an issue. Um, so no, maternal instinct is, is really big. It can be linked to various different things. It can be linked to their maturity, their nutrition, um, but I think it's it's getting those genetics right, um, and we have got such a, a I would say a crisis within the industry of there's just there's not skilled labour there's not a, enough skilled labour to go around all of us. And when I say that, that we need we need a sheep to choose more from less, that kind of maternal instinct is definitely definitely a, a key attribute that that's needed there in this perfect future sheep definitely. And when you when you talk about genetics, then Kirsten, what what would you like to see if we could normalise something within the Scottish sheep flock? What what practice would that be, or or what what technology should we be making more use of? Definitely weight, definitely weight. Um, we 
we we are good at technology in in a way in that we've got online trading platforms. EID for sheep came in and some folk really embraced it and, and got readers and have taken huge amount of data and are making real data driven decisions and are enhancing and improving the productivity and the performance of the flocks, which which for them has been absolutely game changing. But I think we as an industry, they're quite expensive and um, being able to, to invest in them. But it's also the confidence to use them and skills to use them, I, th- I think, is, is two real kind of hurdles over it. But there's, there's clear examples of people who have really used it to drive forward their flock. And a lot of them, they, they are maternal flocks. So the, the real flocks that, that you can you can have a really low labour input, but they're very, very productive. Um, using, using data like weighing them, weighing the eight-week wait, seeing, seeing if your management is actually working for those lambs, seeing that the nutrition's right, seeing that the, the mums are actually milking, which if you don't if you don't weigh, how can you know that stuff? How how can you set yourself a baseline to improve if you are going to be kind of changing about your flock and trying to improve it? Uh, and then as as that lamb is growing, depending on if you're going for a, a store or finish market, just having that check in that that yes, my management is doing the right thing or it's not. Especially in a year this year, look how dry we've been already. And um, like if if, the, if we're la- lacking grass now in June, it, it could potentially be a difficult summer where we maybe need to bring in inputs. And having that kind of regular weigh-ins to know, do I need these? Are the lambs growing? Are they not growing? Is I, I think would be game-changing for a lot of people if, if they just take it on, but record it, use that data and let that lead decisions. Do we know, Kirsten, what percentage of sheep upland farmers have weighing equipment? Um, that should be, presumably, you, you would agree that, that that should be fairly commonplace. It should. I think it would surprise you to, to how little did, though, to, to be totally honest with you. Um, and I think labour, is a, labor again, is, is another thing because... Uh, it's just another task to add on to that day. And then it's actually having the time to sit down and look at that data and know what you're looking for and then make decisions off it. And I, I think that that is another another barrier there, definitely. So, Kirsten, you talked about uh, weight there. I've got weights and growth rates here as something worth discussing. Um, what, what are your thoughts then? Yeah, so... We've got kind of industry benchmarks of uh, 20 kilos for your eight-week weight and 30 kilos at weaning, which is generally kind of 12 to 16 weeks. And um, they're industry targets that are very achievable. There's some people completely surpassing them. The people who are completely surpassing them are generally the folk that are using data. Uh, a, they know the weights, so that tells you that, that they are using the data. But they, they feel that, that that data is making such a difference in their business that they're making time time for it as well. And that like that's just weighing that we're, we're talking about. There's so many other things you can use data for, the likes of soil probes to see, to see what the temperature is for when to apply fertilizer. And that's just a really simple thing that can drive a really quick decision that can then assist so many parts of the business. It can have you cutting your silage quicker. It can have you having turnout faster, um, quicker growth of lambs, 
there's so much there but again it's it's cost and what we do with that and Kirsten, kind of related, but but what about carcass length and depth? You know, what, what, are we looking for a big sheep or are we looking for a heavy sheep? <laughs> it totally, totally um, is. Just now, it's very dependent on our carcass classification system, and it's very difficult. Um, like our our current system, there's only about fifty percent of lambs are actually in spec, which which is alarming. But again, we've got 90 plus breeds. You've got meat breeds, you've got maternal breeds. It's very, very difficult to have one one speck of carcass. We also have a domestic market, which wants one thing, and we've got a global market or a European market that wants something else, and we've got a butcher's market. So the three markets are kind of looking for a, a different lamb. So it, it's, it's a really difficult one, and it really it will depend what happens with with carcass classification to be honest so I, I find that quite a difficult one to answer and so Kirsten do, do you think then you mentioned the 90 breeds that, that we have here in Scotland is there scope for 90 breeds in Scotland or or you know should we be looking at a simplification of, of the breed systems that we've got here I think we've we've just got so many opportunists and it's great it's it's really good that we've we've got business people within within farming who see an opportunity to import another breed and that there's a market or else or else we wouldn't have as many would we there's a market for them and and that probably stimulates the next opportunist to, to go and import another breed so it, there's when there's a market it's difficult to stop it i would say but at the end of the day we are trying to market a premium product and we don't have an atypical product which I, I think is is a is a bit of an issue when we see that our, our spec is only 50 percent of them are in spec that that to me says that we should really try and recondense it and and have a, a type given that though what's a type for a lowland farmer and a hill farmer is two different things and that is another part of the the complexity of it and when you say these sheep are out of spec, Kirsten, what what are you really meaning? What what's the issue there? Yeah, so so when we're looking at spec, we're looking at the fat cover and the conformation of the animal. So it may be the likes of this year, um, or after last summer when we were so dry, there was a lot of lambs that were getting sold before they had the adequate fat cover on them, just because that that will have meant buying in some feed, which which some just couldn't afford to do so they were going off on the leaner side so they they would be now a spec similarly we'll have some that are too fat as well so that's yeah our, ideally we're looking for fat cover of a kind of two to three h but we've got the broad band of one to five and um, similarly we've got the europe scale kind of looking from e to o but it's such a wide vary of, of different shapes and sizes go within that. And again, diff- different systems, a hill lamb compared to a, a lowland terminal lamb is, is quite a different shape. Depends entirely on what you want out of your sheep. Yeah. 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 Kirsten, what's your opinion on the future of wool? Um, is wool going to be an integral part of, of Scottish sheep upland systems or, or is wool or has wool had its day? Yeah, wool, wool ticks every box. It ticks every box. It is 
completely natural. It is completely renewable. It grows every year. So in an era where we're looking at everything to do with environment and biodiversity, it should be really high up in people's tick list. But unfortunately, people don't tend to wear woolly jumpers. They'd rather go and buy cotton or something that's mass produced in another country rather than wearing wool, which it seems a bit crazy when we live in quite a cold country in, in the winter time. I guess it's it's fashions, it's it's what people do. But I, I really think it's it's a massively missed opportunity and there's so many uses for wool. You said there when you had the, the podcast with Robert, you talked about the nineteen fifties and what what used to happen. People used to um put wool down to fill in potholes and like put it around their, their strawberries or their plants to guard it from pests and um, there's, there's people now that are using it for insulation in their houses and there is so much potential for it and it's like I say it's, it's a renewable resource that we keep producing more and more of it. Covid has been a real issue for wool and that the market just dropped it just bottomed out overnight and then it was started to stockpile the more it it's renewable we don't stop making it it keeps getting made so um it's yeah covid has had a, a real impact on on it and now the power cost the the energy hike again because it's obviously manufacturing it relies highly on energy and labor and again that's that's two things that as a, as a country we're really really struggling with so i i would love to see wool being used more and really come back into fashion because it like I say, it does. It ticks every box, given given our environmental biodiversity, low carbon. It it really does. And do you know, it strikes me that, that there's a great culture around wool as well. I mean, there, there's the heritage story there of the shepherd on the hill with his with his old shears clipping his yow. But, but there's also the young guys and uh, that are now heading over to, to New Zealand or, or Australia. Um, some people even going to the States or Norway or, or what have you to shear sheep and, and vice versa. How do we raise the profile of, of wool in Scotland then? What, what do we need to do? There's a question. There's a question. We we have a wool marketing board. Um, there's 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 campaigns online. Um, I I don't know. Does it come down to cost? It's it's a is it a luxury? I I don't know. Um, everybody's got a a carpet in their house. It, the the structure for that has to come from somewhere, doesn't it? But I think it's it's just there's so much more we can import now rather than producing ourselves, which which is really quite sad. I really do find it quite sad that we can't use more from our own country that we rely so much on bringing stuff in. And and what do you feel the perspective is of a lot of sheep farmers? Do, do they see it as a, a waste por- a product or a, or a byproduct or is it something that's genuinely valuable to them? Yeah, I, w- I would say a lot see it as a as a byproduct. Unfortunately, it it will cost more to take it off the sheep than it will for what their wool check is, which which is is really quite sad. It used to pay people's rents, like it, it used to be worth a lot of money. Um, and like you say, like it's it's there's so many enthusiastic people within the industry, new entrants, young generation that are making a career from shearing. And they'll they'll shear in this country, and then they'll go over to Norway and get their um, their season in the slaughterhouses and such like. And and it's it's 
yeah, I think it's sheep have to be shorn. It's it's a welfare issue without it. We obviously we do have wool shedders now as well, but I as I said, I, I really would would love wool to come back into fashion because it is like it's it's natural. There's nothing more natural than wool growing off a sheep's back, is there? And Kirsten, the next thing I've got on my list here. And I was encouraged by one of our mutual colleagues to add this in. So I promise I'm not trying to get you in trouble, but horns or no horns, what, what do you think? In terms of management, is there is there a justification for horns or is that something that you think we should be moving away from? Do you think there are some breeds where it's, it's okay and, and some where you'd like to see a transition away from them? What, what's your thoughts? They're the one thing that you don't do anything with. So you don't get a meat yield off it. You don't get wool off it. You can make some beautiful horns off, uh, beautiful sticks off them though, uh, crooks. So there's there's no there's no said market for them. So I I can see the argument for no horns. I absolutely can. At the same aspect, there's a, a certain breed that lives on the hills, and they have horns. They don't come pulled, and they're perfect for that environment and. And they live, the, you know, they, they, they chew on heather, they, they can live off nothing. I'm saying have more um, more from less. Breeds like that, they're, they're exactly, you know, they're low input, which is, is where I think we really need to be is, is low input sheep systems. So, yeah, while, while the horns don't add value, some breeds have them and they're very efficient breeds. Mm-hmm. So. I'm I'm afraid I'm probably not going to fall down your rabbit hole here <laughs> horns versus no horns. <laughs> no, no, that's that's perfectly fine. That's all good. Um, one of the things that was very important when I was talking with Robert was the temperament of, of a cow. Now, maybe that's less important for a sheep, but what, what's your take on, on temperament within the flock? What, what should we be breeding for? Um, how often should we be handling our sheep? And how do we create an environment that you know, it's conducive to our welfare and is also good for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm not fussed about temperament for sheep. I completely get it with cattle. I completely get it. But but for sheep, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too fussed because we're, we don't have them. They're not as big as, as a cattle. They can't cause the damage that cattle can. And we, we have to be wise with health and safety. We have to look after ourselves completely. We have labour shortages. We have to have safe working practices for our staff. Sheep, um, there's, there's not the same issue there. There's not the same weight behind them. There's not the same power behind them. To run away from you, it's natural. If you live in a hill, you're not used to seeing a person. So I would be worried if, if I went onto a hill and the, the sheep didn't move. It would make me wonder there's something wrong with them rather than being right with them. You don't want them to run away from their lambs. But that, to me, is more maternal instinct and not temperament. So, yeah, I've, I'm not fussed about temperament Temperament for sheep. Um, the, the, more, the more natural they are and the more low input they can be and less reliant on labour, the better. And you're not going to have a quiet animal that has a low amount of labour around it. Kirsten, you mentioned uh, you mentioned lambs there. In terms of the number of lambs that our yows should be having, 
I've heard it said that we shouldn't be afraid of triplets and that actually that's where we want to get to, provided she can rear them, that's absolutely fine. I've heard some people say, no, no, twins are the way to go. And I've heard some pretty extensive guys who are quite happy just getting one healthy single lamb and, and just maintaining their, their numbers. What's, what's your take? I mean, what what presumably you talk quite a bit about the resilience in a flock and the need to be efficient. Um, presumably the more lambs we can get, the better, or or is that not the case? There's a, there's a sweet spot, I would say. And being resilient is something that's so important here. So if you're an excellent grass manager, you know fine well you're going to have feed in front of them and that, that she can rear three, then go for it. Unfortunately, not not everybody ticks that box and not every part of Scotland can tick that box. So um, there's, again, we've got so many breeds that can do so many different things. You've got folk who are, who are growing the likes of chicory, mixed species swords. These are brilliant, brilliant crops in that they're high protein, they're high energy. They're giving that yow everything she needs for that lactation of, of three lambs. Most importantly, we want her not to lose condition. We want we want to have a lamb or lambs out of her next year. And if if it's if it's done wrong and she doesn't have the feed in front of her, then she won't be productive. And it's it's a bit like the the calving at two, calving at three argument. It's great if if the management's right, if the system's right, if the environment's right, if the farm's right. There's there's a lot of variables within there. Uh, for some folk, it just doesn't suit them, and they'll they'll take them off, they'll twin them on. Great, that's that that suits them. But there there is some some people really really managing them very very well, um, and yeah, there's 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 nothing wrong with that as as long as she she's not working too hard that she she can't then be productive herself. So again, it's it's one of these that. Uh, Definitely, it's great if, if you can do it. But if you can't do it, don't beat yourself up because you're not doing it. It's just this: either the, the management, the system, the farm, the breed isn't, isn't working for, for that. What is the situation with fluke in Scotland right now? And is it something that we still need to be mindful of? Is it, is it getting better as the years progress or is, is it getting worse? You know, what, what, what's the outlook like? I would say that some some parts of Scotland it's been fried this this last six weeks with with the way the weather's been. There's no wet bits in, in some parts of Scotland. Other parts there's plenty of wet bits. So I would say it's it's still very much a, a problem. You've got farms that have got resistance as well, and a, a sheep of the future. I would love to have a sheep that would be um, that could be resistant to worms to fluke not get mastitis, not get any sore feet. This is this is just a complete and utter wish list here. And um, repels flies would be another one that would, that would be really good. Um, those would be the, the five top, I would say, real health issues within the within the Scottish flock. The, the environment we have, flies, maggots, it it, it happens. And yeah, people are putting on products to stop it. They can dip them. They can put on um, product, but but still, it happens. And um, we we'll, we can quite easily end up in a way that will be resistant to some of these products as well. So I think if if we could 
eventually get to the fact that, that we've got a sheep that, that doesn't need to be treated for flies, worms, fluke, um, all the better. Similarly with feet, there's, there's plenty of people now vaccinating. Again, though, that's an input. And I, I want a sheep that's low input. So if, if, if we can, and, and we definitely can, we can breed out bad feet. We can breed out mastitis problems. It takes time. It's it's not just a silver bullet and it's it's done for, for next year. It, it takes time. It takes management. It takes careful selection, looking at the genetics that are coming into the flock. Um, but there's, there's people who are achieving it as well. And, and again, a, a lot of these folk that are achieving that are real data-driven people. And that's that's really why I think that, that data has got such an important part into taking the, the flock forward in the future. Kirsten, are, are you optimistic about the outlook for the Preparing for Sustainable Farming funding? Obviously, Scottish Government have outlined a series of um, options and, and methods for for people in, in both the beef and sheep sectors to investigate some of the underlying health issues that they've got with their flocks. You've just talked about um, disease and, and pest control. I mean, do you, do you think that we're going to see a great uptake in these? Yeah, so there's there's some really good options in, in there where you can screen for the likes of your iceberg diseases such as OPA for yonis. That is something that's really untalked about, I would say, in the sheep industry and that not a lot of people do like of cow-yow screening to, to really identify. People accept they, get, they, they, they have cow-yows, they don't regain condition, but there's very little often as there are real investigations as, as to why. So I really hope that that actually pushes on some of this so we can have more of an understanding to how extensive the problem is within the Scottish flock. Other options in there would be um, looking at lameness, your faecal egg counts for, for worms. And again, when, when I'm saying we want the sheep of the future as low input, to know if you need to worm or not to worm rather than just blanket worming, it is, it's, it's assisting that, but at the same time, it's, it's reducing the inputs and hopefully resi- reducing any resistance to, to these wormers again, which when we've only got five groups of them, it, it is quite alarming how, how quickly we can, we can break them. And again, the parasite investigation. So I'm speaking there about worms. We've, we've got fluke there as well. So I, I think they're, they're really good and um, they're, they're there for people to, to uptake. They're, they're not competitive. You can just get on and, and do them. So I would really encourage people to do that. And I suppose it allows people to develop the relationship that they've got with their, their local vets as well. There are maybe some businesses out there that don't ask them for an awful lot, don't seek an awful lot of advice from them. But there's maybe an opportunity here. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's igniting that conversation and having somebody else coming into your business who doesn't necessarily know the day to day running is really, really rewarding for people. And it, they can ask the, what feels like the silliest of questions, like why, why have you got a gate there or why, why do you worm that product then? Something that you just always do that you don't know is wrong until somebody out, out with the business coming in has a look. So, no, I, I think that's a, a, a real asset to the industry. 
Kirsten, you just uh, mentioned bringing somebody in, um, an external person in to take a look at your business. One of my questions here is, have you seen anything happening internationally that you think maybe Scotland could be making better use of? Are are there any um, innovations out there that that we should be paying more attention to? You mentioned that there are 90 plus breeds in Scotland. Are there any additional ones that you think maybe we could give a go to in Scotland? Do you know, when when you you look at European sheep systems, you have some some you think, wow, UK is really far advanced here. You've you've got some countries that'll have people out with them twenty four seven guarding them from the likes of wolves, which which is just quite unbelievable, I would say, compared to where, where we are as systems. And then you'd have the other extremes, like the New Zealand-Australian system, where, where it's big numbers and, and low labour. So I, I think we're, we are in the middle of that. The complexity of all these breeds is, is something that's quite unique to the, to the UK, I would say. Um, but there's, do you know, there's, there's some real simple ones out there the likes of there's, there's some European countries that, that use guarding dogs. And we have got massive problems with likes of ravens, badgers, um, the, the real predators within that are, are making quite an impact on some flocks. And I, I just wonder if there is a place for, for that type of system. I'm not sure how, how, we, go, how we go about introducing something as, as radical as that. But for some of these some of these flocks that are getting high predation, there's got to be a cure. And and currently the, the main the, the only option is housing them for a large proportion of the year. But this is usually in flocks where they, they don't have the, the ability to house, they don't have straw and, and stuff. They don't have space, um, they don't have housing. So um, I think we really need to look look at some of these places that are are challenged in this way, that are in the harsher environments, uh, and how how we can actually protect their flocks. So I think there is probably lessons we can learn. Places like um, that that are guarding them, guarding their sheep against bears. Like we're we're talking about ravens, they're talking about bears and wolves. So we we it's it's difficult to 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 class the two together, but. But they are protecting their flocks, and it doesn't feel like we are protecting ours. So I think there is there's lessons to be learned through that, definitely. That sounds great. And actually, um, anybody who's listening to this podcast, um, our previous episode was on predator control with uh, SAC Consulting's Paul Chapman. So anybody interested in looking at the predator control issue, um, please look through the the catalogue, and you'll find that episode. Um, Kirsten. Is there any any one individual or any organisation out there that you think is making a particularly good uh, case or a particularly good example um, of a, a resilient flock that you think more people should be paying attention to? Do you know, I, I would look at the businesses who are, who are winning the industry awards. You've got some fantastic industry awards. You've got the Agricultural Press. They, they do awards. You've got AgriScot does, does awards. And when you you hear what those businesses are doing, they're 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 real um, thinkers. Generally, they 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 look they look at their performance, they see how to adapt their performance, they look at the real challenges that that they're facing, and then they 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 look at resilience around those challenges. So I I would I would look out some some of those businesses. 
um, say lameness, say lameness is a problem. They've got real strategies of of how they're going to how how they're going to combat that through picking picking their replacements, bringing in new genetics. If it is, um, most of them are are looking at data, and and I keep coming back to this data. Like the the power of data is huge, and it's so so underused within agriculture. There is so many different things getting developed constantly. There's so many different readers, sensors. Um, we have just SEC or SRUC has just imported over the um, portable accumulation chambers from New Zealand to 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 be able to read methane within sheep. And you know, there's some of these fantastic, mind blowing things that are are coming in. That as an industry to to sell a world class meat, we're going to have to adopt to show that we are a world class meat. So, Kirsten, um, a little bit earlier on, you mentioned um, the use of of potentially using guard dogs to to protect um, flocks from predation. Obviously. We are in a position here in Scotland where there's a lot of a discussion around the reintroduction of large predatory species um, and some of the rhetoric around the the sheep that are in the uplands, in, in particular species like the, the, the Scottish blackface. Um, there is this idea that, you know, these are invasive, non-native species. And if we want to achieve nature net gain or, or net zero carbon emissions, we want to be seeing these species coming off the hills. I just want to get your take on that. Okay, so, so many people come to Scotland. We have got a massive tourism um, industry. It brings so much money to Scotland. People come to see the beautiful lochs, glens, Scotland in its, in its beauty. If we remove livestock from these upland areas, it's not going to be beautiful. It's going to be scrub. It's going to be bracken. You're not going to see it from the roadside. And livestock plays such a massive, massive role into regenerating that ground, keeping keeping it beautiful, but at the same time, they're they're producing off that land that can't actually be used for anything else. You, you can't grow fruit or vegetables on that land. And they they're producing meat that we can then, as Scotland, we can sell it, we can trade it, we can put it out globally we can we can do so much with it and i i really struggle with with this with this argument because i i can only see one way and and it's my way obviously but i i do i i struggle because the other side is is also very very passionate on on there as well and i i think it would really hurt um our economy for one but then the the social side of living in some of these remote places within Scotland, that agriculture is so, so vastly important to them. And if we take out agriculture, who's going to live in these places? Is there going to be local schools in these places? Do kids then have to go to boarding schools because there's, there's nothing there? And it, it does, it opens up a massive can of worms to me, but I... That's just me. That's me personally, my argument. But um, it's an interesting one, and it's it's one we come over more and more again. Um, I honestly really think that livestock is is a massive part of this solution of of we're in a climate crisis, 
and and taking livestock off of these hills, I don't think it's going to benefit these hills in any ways or means. So, Kirsten, thanks very much for coming back on Through All the Hill. It's been really good to sit down with you and have this chat again. Um, hopefully you'll you'll come back and uh, for future topics, and there is a lot to discuss. I just wondered, could we get some closing thoughts from you, and how do people get in touch with you? Um, closing thoughts, I guess the, the question at the start of this was a flock for the future. What is the future sheep? And we've mused away about various different different things. Um, this this low input system, I think, is is the way ahead for sheep. I also think concentrating on the inside and not the outside might help the whole ninety breeds thing, because inside they're all the same inside. They have the same the same stuff. If we could just focus maybe on the genetics, which then makes the outside look look slightly different, and productivity and performance is has got to be I would say got to be the drivers and to to have a low input sheep I think we we need to look at our systems and think about where the waste is and and try and try and reduce the waste it might be that there's there's not enough lambs it might be that there's too much feed in the system and then that maybe makes you look at at the breed look at your environment to to what actually suits you so I'm I'm not sure if we've answered the flock for the future or just mused around it, to be honest, Alex. No, no, I, I think I think it's all good. Like you say, it's it's a huge topic and um, we can't possibly cover it all in one podcast. But uh, but no, thank you very much for, for joining us, Kirsten. And on behalf of the, the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, I think we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.